This sermon was preached at University Park Baptist Church in Houston, Texas. For more information about UPBC, visit upbchouston.org. Let's begin our time in prayer this morning. Father, we thank you for this day and the opportunity to gather as your people. And uh, Lord, we are overcome with gratefulness, thankfulness, Lord, especially for the mothers in the room. Uh, Lord, for our own mothers, um, Lord, we're just so grateful for the way that you have uh, blessed us and for um, you know, the grace that you've shown us through um, the mothers in this congregation and those in our own lives. We pray they would be encouraged and strengthened, Lord, in all that they're doing and understand, Lord, your, your, your love and care for them. Lord, we pray that you would open our eyes now to see what you would have for us to see in your word. We know, Lord, sometimes the most powerful things that we see in the Bible have to do with understanding you more and understanding who we are more clearly. And so we pray that this morning we would understand who you are and who we are, and that that would be a great blessing to University Park Baptist Church. We pray that you would do this, Lord, for your glory. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, we are going to pause our normal kind of routine of walking through um, books of the Bible verse by verse uh, to, to, to take a moment and think about uh, a series that we've been working through for about a year now on our mission and vision at UPBC. So if you're visiting with us, do know that that is our normal practice. We've, we, we just had a couple sermons on the book of Jonah uh, next week, Lord willing, we'll have one on 1 Corinthians, and then we'll pick up a series, extended series, through Luke's gospel. Uh, but the elders really wanted to, to continue to hold before you our mission and vision as a church. Keep that before you regularly. And uh, that's going to begin with just a statement about, about who we are as a church. And I think you'll see some of these statements on the screen. You can uh, follow along. These are, these are going to outline some of the things we've discussed already over the past year. Uh, University Park Baptist Church is a redeemed people gathered together by the grace of God for the glory of God. That's who we are. And what are we about? Well, we express our vision for ministry using four M's, mission, message, ministry, and motivation. And so let me just go through those with you here up front. First, our mission Our mission is to be faithfully urgent in making and maturing disciples as we preach the gospel from southwest Houston to the ends of the earth. Our message, our message is that God is, God speaks, God saves, and God sins. That's the message that we want to consistently preach and and live out. The next M has to do with ministry. Our ministry is centered around the local church, God's program for spreading His glory to the nations. And then finally, that last M, motivation. Our motivation is the love of Christ that compels us. We've preached through and taught through three of those four M's over the last year or so. Uh, If you've missed those sermons, you can find those on our website. Especially if you're visiting with us and you want to just know a little bit more about our church, that would be a good just use of your time to go through and work through some of those sermons to get at some of the heart of of who we are at UPBC. This morning, we're going to look at that third M, the last M that we haven't 
kind of unpacked, and it's that M uh, related to ministry. What does it mean to have a ministry that's centered around the local church, that's anchored to the local church, revolving around the church? We state that, that it's actually the church that is God's program, His means for spreading His glory to the nations. I don't think that statement is necessarily a given in our society today or even among Christians. Uh, Carl Truman, along with many others, have used the, the, the words autonomous individualism, big words, to describe kind of the, the, the feel of our current age. Um, in other words, we like to do our own thing. We like to do what we want to do, creating our own standards apart from any institution that would tell us who we are and what we are to do. And that includes the church. One author points out that the issue in doing our own thing isn't that we don't like or want community. Actually, everyone likes community. Everyone wants community. Just think about how successful your workout program is if you're a part of that here in the city or the online community that you share with others or how your sports team kind of bonds at the end of the year and everybody feels like, They know each other and they don't want it to end. No, it's not community that people are wanting to throw overboard. It's authority. It's having a community that's committed and has some accountability in your life. When that starts to happen, then people begin to say, okay, I'm out on that. I'll gladly hang out with you as long as you don't tell me who I am or what I have to do. Often I notice when I talk about church structures, you know, polity, and this is the way that the church operates, you can just feel people zoning out, zoning out, falling asleep. Okay, I want to talk about the the important stuff. Let's talk about evangelism. Let's talk about missions, all those things. Friends, I just want to argue here in this sermon that the church is absolutely central to our witness, to our missions, to our evangelism, and I'm going to say even to our own sanctification. I observed this on Wednesday night as we installed new elders and deacons from Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6 is all about the church having problems and trying to solve those problems with electing officials. So they elect deacons under the authority of the apostles. The congregation selects those deacons that the church would, would not continue to overlook the widows that were being overlooked in the distribution of food. There was a real problem, an issue. But the sentence that comes right after that that whole process on polity and church structure is this in Acts 6-7, and the word of God continued to increase. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. And so we see in the book of Acts, the church, church being strengthened And then from that, mission and evangelism resulting. So we're going to argue the church is not on the periphery of our discipleship, our evangelism, our mission strategies, our sanctification, our spiritual growth. It's actually essential. As one author put it, Christianity is church-shaped. Our hope is to actually recover and instill a a church-shaped vision for discipleship and evangelism and missions that's rooted in Scripture. So that's where that vision statement comes from. The main point of the sermon is that statement on ministry. Our ministry is centered around the local church. God's program for spreading 
His glory to the nations. And I just want to make four statements about the church that I hope will just support that statement, reinforce and refresh our love for the local church. Statement number one. If you're taking notes, there's going to be four of them. Number one, Jesus has guaranteed the church's victory. Number one, Jesus has guaranteed the church's victory. Uh, for Christmas, I was given a meat thermometer. Tells you a little bit about my life. Meat thermometer. And this meat thermometer works like this. I can stick a little probe in the steak or the whatever I'm cooking and go inside and look on my phone and can tell what the temperature of the meat is, what it's supposed to be, target temp, and then when it's going to be done. Isn't that great? I just thought you'd want to know that. Um, I love that little thermometer. What if, what if I had a thermometer on your heart? It's like, man, that's a, that's a jump, but okay. What if I had a thermometer on your heart that I could tell where the internal frustrations are? Okay, I, I could tell kind of the spiritual probe to measure right now, what, what, how close are you to being done? How close are you to being like, okay, I'm kind of fed up with these things. What are you frustrated with? What are you disappointed with? So judging by my fairly brief interaction online and, and my experience as a pastor, let me just give you three categories where I'm going to guess I would bet money that you're perhaps upset about today. And I think rightly so. Number one, the direction of our culture. Number two, you're seeing faithful institutions go backward. And number three, personal trials, personal suffering. So culturally, culturally speaking, we're seeing the, the sexual revolution in full bloom. Gender confusion, a new worldview that's being, being out there that is basically, uh, we're, we're self-determining who we are regardless of what we see or what God has said. And of course, we know three years ago, COVID has introduced some interesting other problems, a spectrum of concerns having to do with our government's um, kind of overstepping biblical boundaries and then giving us solutions to the problems that only make the problems worse. So culturally, we're a mess. We're also watching faithful institutions from college ministries to publishers to universities to seminaries waver on biblical truth. So these cultural tides are making their ways, blowing over these institutions. Just because you have Baptist or Christian in your name doesn't mean you're protected from these waves. Even our concerns with the cooperation of churches called the Southern Baptist Convention are at the forefront of our minds, even this summer. And this is not to mention our own personal and family struggles that many of us are dealing with this morning, thinking through physical illness, disease, family division. Family members, children who are wayward, unsaved. There's estrangement in your family that cuts like a knife. Now, my point isn't that we shouldn't work for societal change or seek to bolster faithful institutions that seek to carry on the work of Christ from a biblical worldview. Far from it. I'm not saying that we shouldn't work to serve the poor and seek justice for those who denied it. I'm also not saying life is easy or that we shouldn't all that, do all that we can to evangelize our family and work for unity and peace. But I am saying this, 
The hope that Scripture holds out for God's people is not that society would be broadly and permanently transformed by the preaching of the gospel. That's not our ultimate hope. We pray that would happen as people are converted and live under the reign of Jesus in so many ways. We've, we've seen it happen and we pray it would continue to happen. But friends, when we read of the, the consummation of all things, the last days, we see that the heavenly city does not rise up from the ground that we've built. It actually comes down from heaven. The gospel's main thrust isn't to renew fallen structures in the world. Praise God, though, when it happens. But to create a new community of people who are washed in the blood of Jesus Christ. And that community, that institution, that body has a guarantee from Jesus Christ that it will succeed. Right after Peter confesses the true identity of Jesus in Matthew 16, Jesus is going to give him that very promise. Why don't you open your Bible there to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16. There's been ups and downs with the disciples at this point. And finally, the question of who do you say that I am? Who is this Jesus is answered correctly. Jesus, uh, Peter answers and, and, and proclaims who Jesus is. And then look at verse 18, Jesus' response. I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. There's two promises built into that verse. First, it's Jesus that will build the church. He's the architect. He's the general contractor. So no matter what we see with our eyes, if you ever walked across a construction site and just how, how messy it is, there's, there's rubble everywhere, things are thrown here and there, it looks like, it looks like a dump. Sometimes maybe you feel like, hey, I feel like that's, that's church. It feels like a construction zone. But how comforting to know that Jesus is doing something. He's building something. This isn't just, just randomly there. He's actually working to build something. That promise remains. He's working to build His church. And secondly, it shall prevail. The gates of hell won't prevail over it. Though Satan hates the church, he hates the work of Jesus, he's powerless to ultimately stop it. He can do damage. He will do damage. He's going to win some skirmishes and battles. Some churches will close their doors. Some churches will split. Some will lose their, their, their saltiness. But he will not win the war. The church's mission will succeed. The church wins. We can be confident of this. The church is God's plan. It is His purpose. And so, brother and sister, I just want to ask you, is there a better investment of your life than in the local church? A better investment of your life than in the church. You know, the United States may not exist for our grandchildren. The SBC may go away tomorrow. Our families may be broken and hurting until our last day. Our cancer 
may not be treatable. The poor and suffering may never find true relief in this life. Jesus said, the poor will always be with you. We may not ever see the tide ultimately change in our culture as it relates to gender and marriage and abortion and racism and corruption. But the church will prevail. The mission of the church will never fail. We just need to remember that you in Philippians 1.16 is plural. It's directed to the church when Paul says, Philippians 1.6 rather, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you, you, plural, will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Listen to Paul's encouragement to a, a church that had all kinds of issues, all kinds of struggles. The church at Corinth 1 Corinthians 15, 58, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. The labor you put in, brother and sister, to love and guard and support and invest in the church is not in vain. Jesus has guaranteed the church will be victorious. And that victory is associated with the church's Mission. So that's our second statement that we'll make this morning. Number two, Jesus has given authority to the church to carry out the Great Commission. If you have your Bible there still open in Matthew 16, let's look again at that passage, that interaction between Jesus and the Apostle Peter. Uh, chapter 16, beginning in verse 16. Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. There's been a lot of discussion and debate about what or who the rock is that Jesus is going to build His church on. Uh, it seems the plainest meaning of this, this sentence is that, that Jesus is building his church on Peter himself. But Peter is also making a true confession about Jesus. And so I don't think we're meant to separate Jesus, or rather Peter, from his confession about Jesus. We should try to hold those two things together. It's a matter, as one author describes, of the what and the who. The what is the confession about Jesus, and the who is the person making the confession, Peter. So you could summarize it by saying Jesus isn't building his church on just truths alone or just persons alone, but persons who confess the truth about him. He builds his church on confessors, confessors of who he is. Now, how's he going to do that? What does that look like? And I think that's where verse 19 helps us to see. Verse 19, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. I think the easiest way to understand the, the keys of the kingdom is just to stay with that, that context of Peter's confession. The who and the what. So Jesus is going to build his church on people. The who, who confess the truth about him. The gospel, the what. Many scholars believe that this phrase, binding and loosing, comes from the way that the rabbis would, would, 
would use this language to interpret the law in its applications. So they would decide the meaning of a text and whether or not it applied to a particular situation or not. And they would, they would either have that application binding or loose someone from that, the replications of that, of that text. It seems to also be referring to a spectrum of things, doesn't it? That word, whatever. Whatever you bind or loose on earth is bound or loosed in heaven. So what is Jesus doing? He's, he's giving authority to Peter and the disciples to speak for heaven on earth. They're authorized to assess the, the what of professions of faith, like Peter's. And the who, whether the people making those professions are, are credible. Sometimes the profession that a person makes in their life don't actually line up. We see an example of that in Matthew 18. Flip over your Bibles to Matthew 18. Look at verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by the Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am amongst them. So friends, here we have the blueprint for dealing with sin and conflict. Notice, in the church. How, how often is it that a friend or acquaintance will come to me and say, there's this marriage situation, there's this difficult situation where this person is dealing with. One of my first questions is, are they a member of a church? Because God actually set something up to deal with it already. And often the answer is no. Or they're a part of a church that doesn't, doesn't take passages like Matthew 18 kind of seriously and, and work through it. But underneath that, that same phrase is here, isn't it? Binding and loosing. But now the authority is given over to the church. That assembled group of believers that regularly live out the Christian life together. This decision about discipline, disciplining an unrepentant person after these attempts to reconcile. That's part of the binding and loosing authority that God has given over to the church. It's just making an assessment of a person's spiritual condition and then acting on that judgment in a way that has a heavenly impact. In other words, the church is representing heaven on earth by guarding the gospel and those that profess to believe the gospel. Now flip over to Matthew 28. We see this theme continue in a very familiar passage, the Great Commission. Beginning in verse 18. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So, so here, Jesus is commissioning and authorizing His people, the church, to make disciples and then baptize them. 
So the church is called to share the gospel and then assess those who, who profess faith, assess those professions of faith, baptize the credible professors into the fellowship. Essentially, the church is making a declaration on heaven's behalf saying this person's doctrine is consistent with the gospel. We affirm this person as a kingdom citizen. That's what happens when we we baptize someone. Think of it like a passport being issued. Now you're being issued a passport to represent the kingdom of heaven on earth. We're affirming that. And then that person's fellowship with the congregation is is then kind of reinforced regularly at the Lord's Supper. It's like you're having that passport renewed. Something I need to do personally. When you come to the Lord's table and we're saying these are the ones in in this congregation who are trusting in the body of Christ, the blood of Christ, who are living out a kingdom lifestyle. Or in the case of excommunication, we can no longer affirm this person's profession. They are living more like the world than a citizen of the kingdom. One author says it's like this, baptism binds the one to many and the Lord's Supper binds the many to one. And this this practice of the ordinances is meant to guard and preserve and help us proclaim the gospel. So friends, obeying the Great Commission apart from the church doesn't make sense biblically. Think of it this way. Jesus' ministry on earth continues through the church. Isn't that the way Luke describes it? The beginning of his second volume, Acts 1.1. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. What's the implication? He's still doing and teaching through his body, through the church. So we ought not separate evangelism and missions from the church. It's actually the vehicle Jesus has given to carry out the Great Commission. He's authorized the church to speak for heaven on earth. Let's look at the third statement. Number three. Jesus sanctifies His people through the church. Can I get an amen? Anybody agree with that? Jesus sanctifies His people through the church. Sometimes I hear hear this. I've been treated better by non-Christians than I have by my own church. Or my non-Christian work, workout group is more encouraging than my small group at church. It's not necessarily our church, just things I've heard. I'm doing great with my college campus ministry, but the church isn't really doing it for me. So I want to say up front that churches are made up 100%, 100% of sinners. And so it's inevitable that we will be hurt and disappointed and let down at some point by the church. But I also want to observe the church is not an affinity group. We're not all here because we're of one ethnicity. We're not gathering because we all enjoy the same hobby. We're not an exercise group or a board game fellowship. It's really easy to get along when everyone is just like you. The church is actually a theater for God's grace to be put on display. He saves people from various backgrounds, experiences, ethnicities, income levels, education levels, personalities, and interests. And then he puts them all in one pot and stirs it up 
with the Holy Spirit and his word and says, that's my plan to reach the world. That's my plan to reach the world. And not only is it it his plan to reach the world, it's his plan to make you and I more holy. To make us more sanctified, to sanctify us, make us more and more holy. Remember, if you're married, you remember the, the first maybe month or two when you were married? You remember that realization that happened, like you're actually committed to this person now and all their, their quirks and the, the, the highs and lows? You remember how it just kind of hit you, how selfish you really are? Maybe that's just me. But you're committed to actually stay with this person, love them, help them follow Jesus, and they're going to help you follow Jesus? Listen to what Paul kind of... This is one illustration of the way Paul gets at this to the, to the Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians 5.14 And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. I think the assumption is all those folks are present and more in your church. So the difference between a church and an affinity group is this. In one of those groups that we're just all like each other, you can just ignore people if they get on your nerves. Just make a note not to talk to them ever again. You can just join another exercise group, get another job, go to another gym. It's like a middle school dating relationship. Break up and move on. The church, however, is a committed family of believers. We don't leave each other. We're here for each other. We intentionally seek to live for the good of each other. So when we see that someone is idle, lazy, we don't just whisper about them to our friends. So-and-so is a loser. We admonish them as a brother or sister. You need to get a job. You need to get off the couch and off the video games in Jesus' name. Serve the Lord. If someone is faint-hearted, we don't just say, suck it up, buttercup, as one of my friends enjoys to say. We bear with them. Speak truth to them. Over and over. We love them. Even when it's really hard. When someone is weak, we don't just leave them in the dust because they can't keep up the spiritual pace. Because they're still struggling with that sin. They can't get over the hump of that past hurt. Actually, Paul says, be patient with them all. Don't you see how God is at work to kill our selfishness and impatience through our commitment to the local church? Patience is a fruit of the Spirit. It's hopeful. It's renewed every morning by God's mercies. And it's long-suffering. And as we say in each one of our members' classes... There are going to be times when you're the one strengthening others in the body and times you're going to need to be strengthened by others in the body. Times when you will be the idle one. You will be the weak one. You'll be dealing with hurt and sin and depression and anger and you will need the church to love you and bear with you. And aren't you glad you don't have to navigate this alone? That God hasn't set it up that way. It's amazing that the way that we do this, the way that we bear with one another, The way that we die to ourselves and care to others is actually baked in to our witness, to what draws other people to Jesus. A new commandment I give you that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. 
by this, all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. So friend, if you want to grow in Christ, commit yourself to other Christians who are different than you are. That is not my idea. That's Jesus's idea. Commit yourself to care for them, pray for them, and be cared for by them. And also commit yourself to come under some of them as your spiritual leaders. It's great to have podcasts to listen to. We live in an age when those are accessible and wonderful, sermons to download, conferences to attend. But friend, those teachers do not know you. That's a one-way relationship. And they haven't been given to you as pastor shepherds of your souls. God gives us shepherds and teachers who know and love and pray for us to equip us. Ephesians 4.11, and he gave the apostles and the prophets and the evangelists and shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. And this is why it's so important that, that the, the shepherds in our congregation smell like sheep, know the sheep, love the sheep, and that the sheep know the shepherds and know that they're cared for and loved by the pastors here at this congregation or whatever congregation you may be a member of. Friend, I wonder, who are the leaders in your life? Here's a verse that I just want to press on you. If you would just admit this morning that you're on the periphery. You're not really a part of the church. You're, you're around, but you're on the periphery. I want you to write down Hebrews 13, 17. And I just want you to think about it logically. It says this, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. So friend, who are the leaders in your life that you are obeying? Who are you submitting to? Is it mainly yourself? Who is assigned by Jesus to keep watch over your soul? Who's going to have to stand one day and give an account to King Jesus for how they had shepherded you? Which televangelist, which church megachurch pastor will do that? Friend, God has, has designed the church for you to flourish and grow spiritually. Listen, that doesn't mean you have to join this church, but you should join a church where the pastors there will pray for you, get to know you, shepherd you, and teach you. You are not meant to walk through this life apart from a local church. So friends, we don't just join a church, attend a church. We submit to a church for our own sanctification. Fourth point, fourth and final statement that I'll make this morning. Jesus loves the church. Jesus loves the church. And what's the implication? Well, so should we. We know this most clearly, don't we? Because he died for the church. He gave his life for you. The most important thing, the thing that we're most excited about, the thing that unifies us and binds us together at this church is that Jesus died for us. Jesus, the perfect, spotless Lamb of God, second person of the Trinity, came to earth, born of a virgin, fully God and fully man, to live a sinless life in our place. 
And then, friends, he died a sin-bearing death. We know the Bible teaches us that we've offended a holy God and we deserve an eternity of his punishment. Therefore, if Jesus absorbs the wrath for us, he is absorbing hell for his people. To take away the wrath. And then he rose. He rose on the third day for our justification. That we would be declared righteous before a holy God because of his life, his death, his resurrection in our place. Friend, that is the good news. And more than anything, we want you to know Jesus Christ. We want you to turn from your sins and put your faith and trust in Jesus who died for you. Would you do that today? If you have questions about what it means to becoming a Christian, I would love to talk to you about that. I'll be in the back at the end. If you have questions, please come talk to us. We'd love for you to get that question settled in your heart and mind today. Jesus died for the church. He loves the church. Listen to the way Paul speaks about this to the Ephesian elders in Acts 20. And elders, what a sobering reminder. Listen to the way he speaks to them. Acts 20, 28. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock which which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. We're stewards of a precious Precious people, not our people. They belong to the Lamb who purchased them with His own blood. Jesus doesn't love the church because the church is perfect or flawless or without fault or sinless. He set His love on us by His grace that we would know the Father through the Son by the power of the Holy Spirit. Before Paul was converted, he hated the church. He hated it. Maybe that's you this morning. Maybe you're just ready for that Mother's Day lunch and you can't wait till we say amen because you hate the church. Or you've been wounded by the church, disappointed by the church so much that you can't even bring yourself to think about joining another church. Friends, Paul was persecuting the church. He was dragging Christians to jail. He stood by in support of one being killed. But then he met Jesus. And we read in Acts 9, he said to Jesus, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Saul's life was changed that day. But among other things, don't you know that connection stuck with him? To persecute Christians is to persecute me, Jesus said. That's how closely he identified with the church. To neglect the church, to ignore the church, to push aside the church is to neglect, push aside, ignore Jesus. It's his own body. Maybe this is where Paul gets that picture that he uses so often in the New Testament. The church is the body of Christ. And if the church is the body, Jesus loves the church, he loves every member of the body. And so should we. Listen to what Paul says to the Corinthians here. He might as well be talking to us, friends. 1 Corinthians 12, 18. But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as He chose. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. We love the sovereignty of God here. But did you notice the sovereignty of God in the 
architecture of building the church. God arranged the members. God, God chose the body to be this way. He composed it. Oh, how convicting. Are there ever members of this body that you wish just weren't there? Do they seem less presentable? God has composed the body. God has arranged it in His perfect wisdom and He loves each and every part. Do we? Do we have room for the disabled person who can't take care of themselves? For that person who's just a little bit on the quirky side, who works the night shift, who's single, who's divorced, who has a very different political perspective than we do, a different preference on music, who speaks another heart language, do we truly believe that Jesus is building his church for his glory, that he is the architect? That seems to be the plan as we look at the New Testament. Paul says this in Ephesians 3, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. God's wisdom is being made known to the heavenly realms through you, beloved. God's plan to receive glory is through the church. Ephesians 3.21, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. There is no other institution on earth that has promises like this. We are representing heaven on earth. And God is receiving glory in and through the church. Jesus loves his church, and so should we. So friend, don't give up on the church. Don't let the church stay on the periphery of your life. It is on, if it's on the periphery now, don't let past hurts and disappointments blur your vision for the beauty of the church. And don't underestimate the danger of separating yourself from the church. Friends, it doesn't always look like an outright denial. I will never go to church again. That rarely happens. It's much more of a slow drift. A slow drift away from God's people and then away from God himself. Friends, this is why our ministry, by his grace, will always be centered around the local church. Because it's God's program for spreading the glory, his glory to the nations. And I just want to give the last words this morning to a pastor from 1589 named Henry Barrow. This is what he said in reflecting on the church. This holy army of saints is marshaled here on earth by these officers under the conduct of their glorious emperor Christ. Thus it marcheth in its most heavenly order and gracious array against all enemies, both bodily and ghostly, Peaceable in itself as Jerusalem, terrible unto them as an army with banners, triumphing over their tyranny with patience, their cruelty with meekness, and over death itself with dying. Thus through the blood of that spotless lamb and that word of their testimony, they are more than conquerors, bruising the head of the serpent. Yea, through the power of the word, they have power to cast down Satan like lightning, to tread upon serpents and scorpions, to cast down strongholds, and everything that exalted itself against God, the gates of hell and all the principalities and powers of the world shall not prevail against it. Amen.
Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for the church. And we thank you for this church in particular, Lord. This regular assembly of saints, University Park Baptist Church. We thank you for every minute of our history. Every minute of all that, that's brought us to this point today. And for the way that you have already been sanctifying us through it. You've been sanctifying me through it. You've been convicting me of my own sin. Lord, you've been showing us as a congregation how to love one another well. And we pray we would be continual learners in that, in that classroom. And that others would see the way that we love each other and they would see reflections, glimpses, previews of your love for us. When we didn't deserve it, you died for us. Oh Lord, help us to love like you that we may be a faithful witness here on this corner for years and years to come. May it be all to your glory. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.